This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. This weekend is Canada Day, and that means it's your festival. That means it is time for, well, all of our summer festivals are ramping back up, but it's your festival, July 1st to 3rd this year. Brenda Marshall is a board member with It's Your Festival. She joins me in the studio. Brenda, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I am excellent. I am looking at the lineup. I mean, there's a lot of things going on, not just the concerts, but I'm looking at the lineup. You guys have a great lineup this year. Very excited to have our lineup, for I, sure. I was on, So on Canada Day, you have Chilliwack, who we just had on the show on Monday. We're talking to uh, Bill Henderson, who just went into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame on Monday. Very exciting. And they're coming on on Canada Day, July 2. The next day, Julie Black, uh, July 3rd, The Box, and a lot of other people yep. in the meantime. So you can where, t- tell us tell us the basic details. If someone wants to be interested in this, where, when, all those kind of things first. Perfect. So um, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, uh, July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd at Gage Park, which is 1000 Main Street East, a beautiful historic Gage Park. Uh, we're currently setting up, so there's lots of excitement going on down there. Um, it's a completely free festival. You can come out. There's multicultural foods. We try to have as many foods of the world as we can. This year, we've got some Jamaican, some Latin, some Asian, some Thai, Colombian, Mexican, Nigerian. You know um, I haven't had breakfast yet. You're just making me <laughs> starve right now. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um we have uh, lots of musical performances going on, some ethnical dances. We have our Parade of Cultures, which is going to go through uh, Gage Park on um, Saturday, um, leading up to our official ceremonies, which will include also our Just One Wish Kindness Awards. Um, we have over 100 vendors. Wow. So arts and craft, health and wellness, service groups, um, our food vendors and um, yeah, there's just so many vendors this year. Um, that's including our food vendors, isn't that hundred? Um, we have um, our spelling bee, our baby contest, the Canada citizenship ceremony, which is starts us off nine o'clock Saturday morning. So nine, it's very early. They have already taken the citizenship test before. Yes, the, yes. yes. So this is the actual ceremony, swearing them in as oh, Canadian it, citizens. Because if they had to take that test, we were just talking about it. If they have to take that test at nine o'clock on a Saturday morning, I don't know how they're going to be doing. <laughs> is this the, uh, I can't remember, is this the first year fully back after COVID? It is. Yes. So for the last three years, we've done our online um, and it's still available on our YouTube channel. So if people want to go back and look, um, it's all still there. So um, we also have our lovely beer garden, which is my job at the festival. I'm the you beer are in garden charge of the manager. Beer garden. Yep. So we have collective arts this year. Did you win some sort of draw to get to be the beer garden? No, no. Person? I just like being manager. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Being in charge where the beer is. That's, you know, that's, for sure. That's not um, bad. So we have collective arts coming in this year. We also, this year for the first time ever, we have a VIP area in our beer garden. So you can actually go online. You can purchase tickets. They're $30 a day, $75 for a weekend pass. It gets you closer to the stage with some nicer seating, um, a table service, and a flight sampling. Nice. So, yeah. Nice. Is this um, how we've seen a lot of different festivals that, as we say, because of COVID, they were having to come up with another way. But when they're back, they've just everybody is coming out to them. Is that what you're expecting? That now that people can come and it's Canada Day weekend that you're expecting a huge crowd for this? We are. We traditionally have about 150,000 people through the park in uh, the weekend. So we're expecting at least that. 
Have you been practicing? I was to say I was talking to uh, Bill Henderson from Chilliwack. Have you been practicing the lyrics to "Gone, Gone, Gone"? <laughs> So you can sing along with them in the beer garden and lead the sing-along because that's, I think, mandatory. Uh, That's mandatory, isn't it? Of course. All of the popular songs from all of the um, headliners. Yeah. No, it is is an excellent, excellent festival. Now, there are, as as you mentioned, there's all kinds of other stuff to be doing there. What happens, and I, I, I even hate to ask you this question, if it rains? Is it still everything's a go? It's still a go. I mean, we may have a quick pause uh, if we need to, but... Yeah, we we are we are there, rain or shine. Have you done this before? Have you been involved with the festival before? I've been involved for about six years. Wow, good for you. Okay, yeah. uh, it is. It's your festival. It's Canada Day weekend down at Gage Park, uh, July first to third. So Friday, uh, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and uh, you can go online. It's your festival. Ca is the website. All of the essential ingredients and things you need to know are there. Uh, Brenda, thank you for coming and thanks for doing this. Thank you. Hope this is a, not just not rainy. Hope it's a sunny, oh. fantastic, hundreds of thousands of people down there. We're the not hope. allowed to say the R word. Rain, you mean. <laughs> no. Yeah, rain. Yeah. yeah, there you go. There will be no rain. We promise no rain and all the smoke will be gone by then. Right? Great. We promise. That, that's great. I'll hold you to that. <laughs> Brenda Marshall, board member with It's Your Festival. Uh, it's your festival.ca. Go and look it up and then uh, spend some time down there this weekend. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There can not possibly be anyone out there who in the last little while has not heard all kinds of talk about AI, artificial intelligence, and whether it's chat GPT or whatever else, that, that people are finding that this is now becoming more and more and more of a thing. And if it hasn't affected your life in some way or someone around you, it will soon. Well, KPMG has looked at numbers around this and its use. And, you know, while it looks like this is a really helpful thing at times, there are also some warning flags being waved. Zoe Willis is the national leader of digital and data. Uh, She joins me now. Zoe, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. This is obviously, you know, technology when it's introduced and when it's used properly, this can be a really, really helpful thing. And there's no question that AI can potentially be a really helpful thing, correct? Absolutely. We've seen a massive uptick in the in 60, 66% of the Canadians that are using it are seeing massive increases in their productivity up to five hours a week. Why? What, what, what are they mostly using it for that they're getting all that time saved? Oh, it's interesting. I think they're using it to either fact check or sense check some of the stuff that they're actually already doing or to generate wording for different things, different, um, different elements and different outputs that they're actually using in their day-to-day lives. I, I hate to ask this as someone who writes for a living, but, but is that where <laughs> we're going here? Is, is this becoming the thing that people are turning to as a writer? I think absolutely, yeah, people are. I think the big thing, though, is if you are, then you really should be fact-checking it because it's not 100% factual. Um, These local language models that are being built are taking in data from all over the internet, right? And as you and I both know, that data is not always 100% factual. So I think the being the humans in the loop and having that kind of um, overlay of fact-checking is going to be critical. So if you use it for writing, then you still probably need to double down on whether it feels right. Zoe, are you telling me right now that everything that is on the internet is not accurate? <laughs> this is this is shocking news for me this morning. I can't believe that you're telling me I can't believe everything I see online. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's an inherent bias in that data. <laughs> 
But okay, so what you, you've put together a chart here as part of the report. There's a lot of things in the report. I want to get to a bunch of them. But one of the things that I find pretty surprising is, and maybe this is me, maybe this is you, maybe this is most people listening. We would think that if we are going to use something to help us or someone else's ideas, most of us, I think, grew up with the idea that you credit that source. Your graph shows that there's an awful lot of people who aren't seeing AI the same way they might use footnotes or something or quotes that they would see it in another source. A lot of people are using AI and just going with it as if they wrote it. Yep. They're using it to empower themselves. Absolutely. What does that mean? Well, I think it means that, you know, there's going to be a lot of people getting credit um, and driving productivity um, using these tools and not crediting where they're getting that information from. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of risk around that, right? Well, there is. And and interestingly, from the graphic that you've put together here, um, and I don't want to be dumping on any particular age group or generation, but it does seem like, and maybe this is a technology thing, maybe this is a comfort with technology thing, but the older you are, the more likely it seems that you would point out if you were handing something in or doing an assignment or doing a report that part of this was from AI. The younger you are, the less likely you would do that. Oh, I think that's true. I think the younger generation have grown up in a very a much more tech-savvy world than some of the older generations, right? So I think um, we, we've done a whole bunch of work around looking at how data and how people share data across generations. And the younger generation definitely think that, well, the data's already out there. You know, why worry about it? Where the older generation have probably been um, more exposed to some of the risks around that. So um, there's definitely a generational divide for sure. Do you think there's also a much higher level of trust among younger people? Because again, they've grown up with technology, so they really trust that. I don't know whether the older generation who you point to as being much more likely to say part of this was from AI is doing that out of honesty or because they're not really sure that what's there is going to be right at. And I want you to make sure that you know that I didn't come up with this. This was something from the computer. Yeah, I think so. And but I think there's also like the educational element to it too, right? I mean, I think you don't trust what you don't necessarily understand. So I think sometimes, you know, the older generations, um, you know, including myself, um, it's sometimes we you don't always understand at the same level of pace as some of the younger folks. So if you don't understand it, you're definitely gonna be more um not trustworthy of it. I think it's on the the onus is on us as individuals to in educate ourselves. Your report talks about the fact that while this is helpful, it is also or can be generating risk, potential risks for employers, uh, employees, I would think, too. And, and employers, for obvious reasons, if someone hands in a report that has, as you say, some information that may not be right or was grabbed from the wrong place, and then that's used to bolster something, you could look like an idiot if you're an employer. But as an employee, is this while you are using this? Are you not almost in some ways making yourself obsolete if you lean on this too much? No, I think that it it's um if you use it in the right way, it can empower. I do think that there's um some responsibility on the employees, but also the employers to ensure that they have the right policies and risk frameworks in place so that they are very clear around the guidelines around what they would in- allow their employees to do and not to do, I guess. Do you think that most employers have that in place yet? Or is this so new and has just burst in front of us that we haven't figured that out yet? I think you've got businesses at both ends of the spectrum. Some businesses are, you know, feet first, using it and actually building those frameworks 
already and then other businesses are not and I think as you can see from the survey one in tw one in um, one in five Canadians are using this right whether their employers know about it already so I think the onus has got to be that you probably need a policy whether you think people are using it or not um, and one of the things we talk about a lot is around responsible frameworks of AI so how you use it responsibly and ethically so that everyone in your organization and, and your employees from the board down right right way through into the the techie folk that are building the algorithms actually all understand what they should and shouldn't be doing. One more number I want to get to, and we're short on time, but and, and I, I'm not sure I understand the number, but you can probably tell me. Uh, Two-thirds, 65% of people say using generative AI is essential to the workloads. Is that 65% across the board? So two-thirds of everybody now is using some form of AI, or is that two-thirds of a particular group? That's two thirds of the um, one in five. So okay. two thirds oh, of okay. the people using it. Yeah. I was going to say, because that would be stunning if already <laughs> we'd reached a point where two thirds of everybody was saying they were using it, you know, but even then uh, of the people who are using it, two thirds have already got to the point where they say it's essential. That's that that's showing a rapid, rapid use of it. Yep, absolutely. And uh, I've been at the collision conference the last couple of days and um, a lot of the people I'm talking about are saying that they, they can't do without it. Already. That's, that's, that Already. is a rapid technology, rapid yeah. advance. Zoe Willis, National Leader of Digital and Data for KPMG. Really appreciate the time. Zoe, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Scott. Nice to meet you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're talking about cars because the guy who runs Volkswagen now, the bar, the CEO, Thomas Schaefer, says the Volkswagen Beetle Dead, dead, dead. Never coming back. Not as far as he's concerned. The Volkswagen Beetle, the arguably one of the most iconic cars ever made. And there are a lot of iconic cars. Despite the fact that maybe there's still a market for it, it's just, it's not happening. He's not, it's not, it's not time to bring this back. It got me wondering though about the idea of, is there a market for this? It, should cars, cars are are not just a way to get around. They are an art form. They're also great business. I mean, we, uh, Canada's economy for a long time has had a huge, the, the auto sector has been a huge part of it. And you start to think about things like, well, cars that, that stand out in your brain as being really unique. Would we, should we bring them back? The DeLorean, should we bring back the DeLorean or the Gremlin? How about the Prowler? I don't know. Maybe Marvin Ryder once upon a time from the Negroot School of Business. Maybe Marvin Ryder once upon a time drove a DeLorean through the streets of Hamilton. I don't know. Did you, sir? No, never, never a DeLorean. I did have a Mazda RX-7, however. Okay. Well, that's, that's pretty, you know, pretty swinging. Drive, drive that one through the city. What about the idea of bringing back these vintage cars? Do you, I mean, is there an economic case to be made that rather than always coming out with something new that people would buy something that was a throwback to these cars of their past? Yeah. So if you don't mind, can I just give you a little context and then I'll dive into sure. that question. Um, the reason why the president of Volkswagen said what he said the other day is that the most recent version of the Beetle, the updated version of the Beetle, introduced in 2007. And at its peak was selling 45,000 units a year in North America. But by 2018, sales of the Volkswagen Beetle had dropped to around 14,000 per year. And that just, it wasn't enough to justify 
keeping the car in the lineup. So they withdrew it in 2018. There were a lot of people who were hoping that as Volkswagen was looking at EVs, electric vehicles, to be introduced, say, in the next two, three, four years, that they might bring the Beetle back as an all-electric car, uh, sort of a commuter option, if you will. And his comment, of course, was that it's dead. It's not coming back, at least not in his lifetime. Uh, never say never. The, the car could come back at some point, but not. Now, in fairness to him, here's the reason why, uh, Scott. Uh, I'm going to quiz you right now. Can you tell me the top three vehicles being sold in North America? Um, the, uh, no, I can't. But I'm guessing that all three of them are large vehicles. Would I be right? Large vehicles as in pickup trucks. Pickup trucks. I was going to say the Ford F-150 might be on there and the right. Toyota Tundra maybe would be on there. No, take take your big three automakers. So the Dodge Ram series of trucks, okay. the Chevy Silverado series of trucks, and the Ford F series of trucks. Each sell, now wait for this, a half a million units, 500,000 units a year. Cars, just cars, sort of ordinary cars, are not among consumers' favorite products. And so if I'm a car maker today, if I'm not selling you an actual truck, then I'm going to sell you an SUV or a crossover vehicle. And for Volkswagen, that's where they're going to put their attention. Now, you asked about the idea of bringing some of them back. And the answer is always, if and only if there's consumer demand for it or there's potential consumer demand for it, Again, Chevrolet announced, this would have been about two years ago, that in their electric fleet of vehicles, they were bringing back um, uh, the Hummer, the, the, uh, yep, the yep. Hummer SUV type of thing. And those electric vehicles were going to be priced at well over $100,000 a piece. And when they opened the website to take orders, the whole production run uh, sold out in something like 15 minutes. So if you give people what they want, even if you bring a name back from the past, it does make sense and you can make a lot of money. But it's not just any vehicle. And that's the problem with the Beetle. There's just nobody who wants that today. When you mentioned about the pickups, and I didn't realize that about the pickup trucks, but it, uh, I don't know what this says about who is buying vehicles right now. But uh, my, my immediate thought is, and maybe this is a stereotype, but pickup trucks, more rural, more folks out in the country, as opposed to urban people living in a city. And if that's the case, and if there's anything to my suspicion about that, then probably you're right. These, some of these cars that were these very chic, very popular city cars, the Gremlin, like again, the Gremlin, I don't know how popular it was, but it's something everyone remembers. Maybe, maybe those old cars that people drove in the cities, maybe country pe people who are working out in rural areas of the country, those don't resonate with them at all. May maybe, as you say, maybe the idea, if we're going to go back to something old to try and touch on some sort of nerve of, of remembering something, maybe some old pickup version of something would be a better idea. Correct. Well, uh, uh, it, it's not rural people who are buying them. It is uh, urban people and suburban people buying these trucks. And to be candid with you, I can't easily explain why most of the people who are buying them uh, have no need for right, all right. of the, the, the horsepower, what have you, of these big trucks. But there is some comfort in driving them that somehow they are uh, uh, going to give people safety and security on the road. I see lots of them being driven by women, for instance, who feel safer somehow behind the wheel of these 
trucks and truck type vehicles. So for for us today to bring back a vehicle, there's nothing no problem with that. If you can remember, they brought back the um, uh, Mini Cooper a few years ago. That was being done by of all people BMW who bought the rights to do that and brought it back, and it did okay. But it did not do well. And that's the question car companies have to ask for. Now, here we are. This is 2023. Uh, Ford is once again reimagining the Mustang. Mm -hmm. We're actually now on the seventh version of the Mustang. uh, And it's a car, but it it does have sort of crossover aspects to it. It's not that uh, speedy muscle car that you remember from the early 1960s. It has many more aspects now. That are crossover. For instance, they sit a little higher. They they are designed for people who are more middle aged, as opposed to someone in their twenties or thirties who are looking for speed. Uh, so there is a market, but you you just can't bring back anything and put it out there. You've got to have enough sales to justify it. And Marvin, I would assume uh, that each car that a company is going to produce to come out now, the the cost to just develop it and get it onto the market is so huge that you can't afford to whiff on one of these. I mean, these car companies, if, if they're going to do this with the market research and everything, they're, they're, they have to make sure that this is going to work. More or less, you're right. I mean, uh, there have been disappointments. There have been cars that have been released to the market with great fanfare and have not done as well as everyone expected. And then you do the postmortem to try to figure out what went wrong. And so today, of course, the big push for all these car companies is to be thinking about EVs, electric vehicles, and what is the right platform for the EVs? So you not only have to think about the brand image that you've got out there, but you know, can you build one uh, that's going to work as an electric vehicle? So we're going to see new models introduced over the next five years because all the car companies want to have an extensive line of EVs by the year 2035. Whether they will bring back some of the brands of the past um, you mentioned the Gremlin as an example. Will they bring that back as part of it? Or will they say, look, that just confuses things too much. If we want to position an EV for sales today, maybe we need to give it a more modern name, something that refreshes the brand image that works with consumers. And so there's going to be a lot of turbulence. And, and of course, the granddaddy of all electric vehicles, Tesla, who you think of as having the high ground, they're going to be challenged in a way they've never imagined as all these right. major car companies bring their electric vehicles to market. Electric DeLorean, I'm telling you. It was already pretty much doing that in Back to the Future. They, you know, you, so you and you and I could do this as the electric Bricklin. Bring oh, back the, the Bricklin. Oh, the Bricklin. Yeah, there's a okay. And for those who are listening right now go the what? Go look it up. Uh Marvin Ryder, thanks so much for doing this. Always appreciate it. Glad to be with you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. If you've been to New York ever, anyone who's been in New York has probably at one time or another stopped for a slice of pizza. New York is famous for its pizza. Chicago has its deep dish pizza, which is, if I may humbly say so, overrated. (gasps) I know. But New York pizza, New York is famous for its pizza. But now in New York City, they are cracking down on a proposal has been brought forward that would require pizza places to do a much better job at controlling emissions from coal and wood-burning pizza ovens, which is leading the pizza makers, the pizza meisters, to say, wait a second, 
First of all, this is going to cost us a fortune to put in all kinds of scrubbing devices for our ovens to get rid of the emissions just from the wood burning because it's just wood burning. But also, it's going to really affect the flavor and change pizza forever. I want to bring in Mark Frugia, who's the owner of Sasso and La Piazza Allegra. Uh, Mark, how are you this morning? I'm great, Scott. How are you? I am good. So do you, would you agree with the general concept that if you start tinkering around with what is flaming the pizza, that it will change the flavor of it? Um, not necessarily. Um, I think the, the, you know, you get a lot of flavor from, from whatever you put into an oven. Um, you know, burning beside the wood, that's where you're going to get up that, you're going to pick up that smoke flavor. You're going to get uh, that crispiness on, on the, the, the pizza themselves. I think what is happening in New York is a little bit silly. Um, you know, they're, they're looking at controlling emissions out of wood and coal-fired ovens. Um, but yet, you know, digging a little bit deeper into their to, to what they're looking at, it really would only affect less than 100 pizza joints in all of New York City. Um, that can actually retrofit um, for for this new technology that they want to implement. So, um, as far as flavor, though, uh, it it wouldn't have an impact. When when a lot of these places that are talking, because a lot of them have been a number of them have been quoted when they're talking about this, and they're saying, okay, the flavor is one thing, but you know, we're 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 working here to try and make a living, and this is going to cost tens of thousands of dollars to do this. And we are running on not huge margins to make this stuff. We're, it, would that be similar? I mean, do, do pizza places make a fortune? Because, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, pizza is more expensive these days. Well, everything's more expensive these days. I mean, are you guys scoring big when you sell a pizza or is it thin, thin margins that you're just getting by on with volume? Uh, it's, right now in the hospitality industry, the margins have gotten very thin um, with the cost and the the true cost of dining out hasn't been reflected on uh, dining room menus yet. Um, now, when you're looking at pizza specifically, um, it really comes down to the ingredients you use. I mean, it, 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 cheese is expensive. Um, of course, you can get cheap cheese. Um, it's out there. It's available. Um, you know, cheese products that will look like cheese. They will spread like cheese. They'll melt like cheese. Um, but if you want something of quality, you're going to be paying for it. Um, so the, the the cost that goes along with what they're they're trying to introduce, yeah, be very prohibitive for a lot of places. And here's the funny thing about this is, well, it's not funny, I suppose, not ha-ha funny, but <laughs> the, I mean, the idea of people getting upset about pizza, you might say, well, come on, it's ridiculous. It's just pizza. I, I, I can absolutely understand why people would get passionate about pizza. For whatever reason, this is one of those foods that, we have strong opinion. Just mention pepperoni on pizza to, or, or pineapple on pizza to someone, I mean, and you will have strong opinions. This is one of those foods that people feel passionately about. Absolutely. It's, um, you know, from different styles, whether you're doing uh, what we do at Sasso, which is Napolitan style, or you do a deep dish, or you do, I mean, there's restaurants in the city that are doing a, a great dish. Detroit style pizza, um, like you said, Chicago style pizza. So there, there is a very, very polarizing um, food item. Um, and if you look towards Europe, um, you know, in Naples, it, it is it's protected by EU law. Um, as really? The, yes, it is protected. Wood burning pizzas in Naples are protected by EU law. Um, so it, it it has 
notoriety around the world. Um, but the passion that comes out when, when, like you said, talking about, you know, pizza toppings or something like that, it's, it's pretty polarizing with some people. Well, and, and the other thing here is that one of the reasons, I think one of the reasons that pizza has become what it's become is it has been general, generally a relatively inexpensive thing that you can buy. If in New York, if they're talking about this and I have to install, someone has to install a twenty or $30,000 scrubbing device, that's got to be passed along. There's got to be a point, I would think, market, which some people would say, you know what, that pizza is just too expensive for me. I'll, I'll find something else. Absolutely. Absolutely. Pizza has been known as a street food. It is Italian street food. It was a uh, something you grabbed on the go. It was quick. It had everything you needed in there. You had your carbs, you had some vegetables, you had your protein, um, you had your dairy. So it, it is it is literally the perfect traveling food. Um, and what has happened is when you start introducing regulations and, and things to, to inhibit uh, business, um, the, the costs have to get passed on. And, and unfortunately, your street food um, becomes very expensive. Uh, and people will, there will be a breaking point where people are like, it's just not worth it. But then again, you know, you look at everything else, it's going up as well. It's so going up as well. If you, you want to dine out, you've got to pick something. Uh, yeah. Uh, Mark Frugia, owner of Sasso and La Piazza Allegra. Thanks for doing this this morning. Really appreciate it. No problem at all. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There is a new poll out by Leger that suggests as we approach Canada Day, not all of us, if we had to, if we weren't born here perhaps and we had to move here and we had to take the citizenship test, we might not all ace it. We might have a bit of a hard time with this one. In fact, uh, a survey of 1,512 Canadian adults in this poll that Leger did found only 23% of us would pass the citizenship test. 23%. Christian Bork is executive vice president and senior partner of Leger. And one of those 23%, I am sure, right, Christian, you would have nailed this 100% if you took this test, correct? Well, when I took it, I actually got seven out of ten right. There, well, basically, I would be right on the cusp. <laughs> there you go. Hey, that's compared to everyone else. By the sounds of it, that would have been outstanding. It's it's. Uh, I don't know if I should be surprised by this or not surprised by this because when I say, I mean the not uh, the surprised. I'd like to believe we know our history and know things about our country. The not surprised is. How many people actually pay attention to all this stuff or remember what they learned in high school or even before then? Yeah, actually, the, the, if we act, if we look at the evidence that we have, apparently the citizenship test is more stringent and, and more difficult to pass today than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, and when we look at how Canadians actually fare on the citizenship test, half of us would not even get half of the questions right. Um, so the fact that, that newcomers to Canada, um, if first need to integrate, find a job, find a place to live, uh, which is not easy today in Canada. Then they need to go through all of this studying to, to, to get the test right. And apparently over eight out of 10 of them actually will be successful on their first try at the citizenship test. So basically, congrats to them because us Canadians, average Canadians don't do as well. No, and again, I mean, some of these things that are on there, I, I don't really think that we probably think of it all that often. It's like studying for a test. If you had prepared for this because these things you had to learn 
Sure. You, I mean, it's not, some of these things are not everyday conversations. Mm. Still, oh, no. still, I would like to think that we know a little bit about ourselves and some of our history. It seems that we're not that good at it. No, and, and it got me thinking, if we were in the U.S., if we were ah. in France, probably in the U.S., all about their constitution, it's probably driven into them um, in a way that we might not do it here in Canada. Same as in France, I'm sure they're extremely proud of the French Revolution. They probably know it by heart. In Great Britain, they kings and queens, they could probably name all of them in the right order. Well, whereas here in Canada, are we that proud of our collective history that, that there's a narrative that we want to teach each other about all the great and not so great stuff we've done over our history? Uh, do we pay enough attention to where we come from? That, it's, Apparently, it, if I look at the test, maybe not. <laughs> and I would, you know, I'm betting that if you were to do another survey and somehow test people on the American citizenship test, I think that many Canadians honestly probably know more about American politics, American history and American stories because of the overwhelming amount of media that we see that comes from the States and news from the States. I bet you we would probably do better on the American test than we would on our own. Yes. And we've asked questions in the past a few years ago about, you know, can, can you name the, the last five prime ministers of Canada? Uh, and to your point, if we had asked, can you name the last five American presidents? Easy. I'm sure Canadians would have aced it. Yeah, I and and here's here's something else that I just this blew me away and maybe you're surprised by this, maybe you're not. You asked uh, among, you know, you, you looked at where in the country people did better than others and out west tended to do better. Uh Atlantic Canada was the lowest. Uh Saskatchewan, Manitoba, British Columbia were the best. Here's what really blew me away though. The highest among voters, the party voters that did the best were the Bloc Québécois voters who I would have expected that the, many of them might be people who don't necessarily want Canada or want uh, their own country of Quebec. I don't know if that how far that still extends, but I'm amazed that they were the ones who knew this the best. Well, there's something to that. Uh, being sort of born and raised uh, in Quebec myself, uh, we're taught the same history, not necessarily from the same angle. Uh, basically. Uh, we're sort of taught the same history, the same dates, the same, you know, the, the Confederation Act, the, the BNA Act. Uh, we're taught all of that, but it's basically under the angle of uh, how did we get the shorter spend of the stick mm. uh, more than anything else. So I was not necessarily that surprised. Even today, we released another poll where we asked, are you proud to be Canadian? And Quebec is in the national average when it comes to being proud of being Canadian. Uh, not lagging behind. Actually, the lowest province when it comes to pride in being Canadian is Alberta. 26% of Albertans say they're not proud to be Canadian. So there's something about the politics there oh, yeah. uh, that, that we need to focus on maybe more than the traditional angle of, of the Quebec versus Ottawa feud uh, that lasted basically all of our lives. Christian Bork, Executive Vice President and Senior Partner with Leger. Really appreciate you taking time this morning. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton Podcast from 900 CHML. Bailey Johnson is a sports reporter, a beat reporter for the Washington Capitol. She's with the Washington Post. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me. So when I say it was not as exciting as some, I I think a lot of people were kind of expecting that this was going to be Tradeville because it had been pretty quiet. And then absolute crickets, no trades at all. 
Yeah, it was kind of unbelievable. I believe it was the first time since 2007 that there was a first round without any trades. We all just kept sitting there last night. You know, you hear the rumors. It sounded like Nashville was trying to get into the top 10. Montreal was maybe looking at moving their pick at fifth overall. And then every pick, you would watch them stand up from the draft table and walk up to the podium. And you were like, okay, this team's making their pick. They're not trading it. And it just continued that way for all 32 of them. Actually, I think Carey Price did try to trade Montreal's pick, or at least trade down. He just, he stalled and stalled until they, to try and give them more time. He just, if you didn't see it, if people listening didn't see it, Carey Price was going to announce Montreal's pick and forgot the guy's name, which was hilarious. It was the best part of the draft, I think, yesterday. It was definitely a unique sort of highlight for sure. The one one team, so there there are a bunch of teams that are getting, you know, praise Chicago, although, I I mean, it would have almost been impossible for Chicago to mess this up. Chicago is being pointed to as a team that did really well. There's a few others. The one team that seems to be getting just dumped on today and last night was the Arizona Coyotes who took two, you know, we never know if these are great picks, but we, we do these instant analysis of these and say, well, that was not the person I had there. So we don't know, but it seems almost universal that Arizona kind of went a little weird yesterday. But not as much as I would say a team like the Leafs who went way off the board with their pick late in the first round, which I'm sure we'll get into, but Arizona definitely surprised. I would say the pick at six when they took um, Dmitry Simichev was more surprising than taking Daniel Boot at 12. So I think everyone thought that Matt Vamichkov was going to be the first Russian off the board. Um, so to see them take Simichev instead was definitely surprising. And then Michkov went to the Flyers at seven right after. Um, but from the, you know, what I've heard and what I kind of prepared heading into the draft, a lot of people do think Simichev could be one of the best defensemen from this draft. And Daniel Boot is his teammate in Russia. So as they were scouting... Simichev, they would have seen Boot a lot as well and obviously came away with a strong impression of both of them. So it is kind of cool to see the two teammates go to the same team. But like you said, definitely interesting for a team to take two Russian players in this first round when there were questions about sort of how that was going to work out and whether teams would feel comfortable drafting Russians this year. Right. And and just, the, I mean, the fact that someone that the experts have said, well, that was a pick that I didn't expect. It doesn't mean they're not going to work out. It just was, you know, for whatever reason, that was not who they saw coming at that time. You mentioned the Leafs. The Leafs take a London Knight. Uh, they've had some success with London Knights players over the years. Daryl Sittler came from the London Knights. Mitch Marner came from the London Knights. Nazem Kadri came from the London Knights. This is the fourth time they've, I think it's just the fourth time they've drafted a London Knight, but I guess when you've had that kind of success and you've got history with the Hunter brothers in a sense, he was uh, on the staff for a while, you know, maybe you just go, you go off the board and you just take your best shot with it. Yeah, they obviously really liked him and certainly he would have been off the board by the time they picked again in the 150s. So you kind of have to take a shot at that point when you only have a couple picks, but the conversation I've seen is that maybe they could have traded back and gotten him in the second or third rounds. I think that was kind of where most people expected the player Easton Cowan to go. Um, I was just reading about him before we hopped on here to make sure I knew a little bit about him because it definitely was a pick that surprised me last night and was not a name I was super familiar with heading into the draft. But it sounds like he's a on the smaller side, but a super competitive winger, the kind of kid who sort of plays that quote unquote winning hockey, which a lot of people obviously like to look for in the draft. The Washington Capitals did a similar thing with their pick. So certainly an interesting one to keep an eye on for the Leafs. I can tell you this, Bailey, that uh, with we had the Hamilton Bulldogs playing in the OHL here, and I bet you most of the people who watch the Bulldogs with the OHL didn't know a lot about about them uh, playing for London. I mean, it's one of those guys that just, it'll be interesting to see how this one turns out for the Leafs. But um, yeah, the uh, draft continues uh, seven rounds in total. So we've got a lot more coming up and uh, that'll be continuing today. Uh, Bailey, really appreciate it. Thanks for doing this. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. That is Bailey Johnson from the Washington Post. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.